This week, another warning. From time to time, we've given you warnings about episodes that contain descriptions that might be disturbing due to the graphic nature of the subject or events being described. This is necessary if one is to present an honest view of history. Our history has been far more aggressive and violent than I'm sure many of us wish were the case. But this week, a warning of a different sort. We've made it all the way from Adam and Eve's ban of earliest Homo sapiens to today. Over the next few episodes, we're going to be dealing with some very difficult issues. Issues you may find it challenging to deal with. Hang in there with us. We know this is difficult and may bring up some anxiety. But if we're going to understand where we are as we stand at this crossroads in history, we're going to have to understand some difficult truths about where we are. You've made it this far. Stay with us for just a little longer. We'll get to some better stuff by the end, we promise. But there's no reaching the promise that this juncture of history holds for us unless we understand and face some crucial realities. Like a novel in which the protagonist must go through a hero's journey and face his or her terrible crucible of fire before coming out the other side with new strength and insight, we are now facing our own crucible. If, like the protagonist in our novel, we are to face our challenge and overcome it, to gain the strength and insight we'll need in the decades ahead, we have to understand the challenges we now face in an honest and clear-eyed manner. We here at Nearest Fiddle truly believe that we're telling the greatest story ever told. The story of where humanity has come, where we are, and where we are going. So stay with us just a little longer. Like our novelist hero, we'll get past our first But it'll be a tough few episodes before we can get to where we're going. So hang in there with us. We'll get there together. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 46, Denial. We've talked about anosognosia before, the condition that comes with some mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, in which the patient is blissfully unaware that they have any mental problem at all, and, in fact, can be quite insistent that they have no problems at all. I've never heard a clinician use the term anosognosia with regard to denial, but I don't think it's all that similar. I've heard the state of being in denial described as, you don't know, and you don't know that you don't know. In fact, you convince yourself that you know the opposite. That seems to sum it up pretty well for me. Our national debt to GDP ratio is getting dangerously close to what will require a downgrading of America's credit rating which will spark a severe financial crisis. Yet virtually everybody who talks about it tells us how the U.S. is the richest country in the history of the world and we can afford more social spending or tax breaks or whatever their favorite federal program is. Republicans continually insist that corporations and the super-rich deserve yet another tax cut. Meanwhile, as I record this, 
President Biden and the Democrats are working to pass not one, but two multi-trillion dollar infrastructure measures. One partisan might say that the other side's plans are too expensive. Yet nobody is saying that the federal deficit is important enough for them to give up their own favored program. So why do we continue incurring trillion-dollar-plus national deficits when the end result of these annual fiscal deficits is not only inevitable, but blatantly obvious? And what about climate change? It's not just that the science is crystal clear on this now, and that virtually all scientists not only agree, but are shouting this from the rooftops, but we're witnessing the effects of global warming all around us. Melting polar ice caps, storms far stronger than anything we've seen before, massive wildfires. So how can so many of us continue to hold on to our climate change denialism? Let's look a little deeper into the psychological phenomenon of denial. There are four levels of denial. First, there's suppression. This is where a person is still in touch with reality, but is consciously suppressing thinking about it. For example, I know I have a dentist appointment tomorrow, but I have a dental phobia, and I'm just not going to think about it because it's too scary for me to think about. Then there's repression. This is where someone hasn't totally lost touch with reality, but there's an issue that's so painful that the subconscious mind kicks in to help push the painful issue from consciousness. Yet, if something or someone brings it up, the repressor will be able to recall and understand the issue. Then we get to the neurotic stage of denial. This is the stage that the denier simply loses touch with him or herself. This is the alcoholic who says, I'm just the one who loves partying. Still, the neurotic denier might still understand when someone points out that they don't just drink when they're with other people, but they always drink whether someone's there or not. But if we drink too heavily for too long, our drinking will eventually likely become an addiction. It's at this level we reach the final and most dangerous level of denial, psychosis. Neurosis is being out of touch with yourself. But psychosis is being out of touch with reality. At this level, the denier is simply unable to understand reality, seeing only the reality he or she has constructed. That is, the reality they see through their addiction. It's this psychotic level of denial that goes along with just about any addiction. I'm certainly not an expert on denial, but what literature I've read on it seems to focus on addiction. When I was an attorney doing bankruptcies, I saw gambling addictions. And to me, they seem as wicked and all-engrossing as any addiction. When a person is wrapped in the embrace of a gambling addiction, the pull of the addiction is so overwhelming, they can't resist it. I've seen the same thing happen with those under the pull of a shopping addiction. What's notable for everyone I've known with a gambling or shopping addiction is that they're squarely in stage four denial. There's no solid connection with reality. In my limited experience, the justification has always been the same. I can afford it. I know I have credit card debt, but I'm able to make my credit card payments every month on time. So I'm okay. 
Note here that there's no acknowledgement of how deeply in debt the gambler or shopper may be. And there's certainly no recognition of the fact that the credit card debt continues to grow dangerously with every passing month. For anyone who may be watching it, who would be privy to the extent of the addict's debt, it would be perfectly obvious where the addict is headed. You may want to scream at them, stop it. You're going to lose everything and file for bankruptcy unless you can turn things around. It wouldn't do any good if you did. That's the nature of addiction. They wouldn't be able to hear you. It's the nature of stage four denial. These are phenomena well known to the therapist community who treat people with these kinds of addictions every day. But as I've said before in this podcast, phenomena that occur on an individual basis can be echoed by a society at large when mass numbers of people develop the same kind of dysfunction and end up creating a critical mass. When this happens, an emergence occurs at the societal level, and the nature of society's culture changes. I'm not aware of any studies digging deeply into mass psychologies during end dynastic period disruptions. But as we watch this one unfold in real time, we can see a few factors coming into play. Remember we saw alcoholism becoming a major factor back immediately before and just after the turn of the 20th century. Back then, things like substance abuse statistics and the domestic abuse that inevitably follows weren't tracked in any kind of substantial academic way. Consequently, they had an entirely different vocabulary about such things. All reformers knew, back at the turn of the 20th century, was that many men were drinking to excess on a very regular basis, and that many women were suffering because of it. If there were bruises or outward signs of the abuse, it wasn't discussed, because it was a family matter. So there are no reliable statistics about either alcoholism or domestic violence from that period. But reading the histories of the time closely, it appears that it was a significant problem. Their limited vocabulary at the time just told them that such things were sin. The Reformers' response to this social evil? Prohibition. As noted in episode 16, prohibition appears to have been very successful if your metric is reducing substance abuse and domestic violence. But, unless someone knows of a study I don't, such conclusions are anecdotal. I've just pieced these conclusions together from reading various accounts of the period. Perhaps someone will do this study for us someday. Still, it raises the question of where it all would have led if the 18th Amendment hadn't been passed and America didn't have its period of prohibition to help dry out its legion of alcoholics. The point is that it did. And once the 21st Amendment was passed and prohibition was rescinded, and America took back to drinking again, all indications are that it did so at much more moderate levels. So we know that periods of excessive addictions, even here in America, aren't death sentences. This brings us back to one of Nero's fiddle's recurring themes. The difference in the character of citizens in the early period of a dynasty and those of its citizens in its final decades. When we use it in this context, the word dynasty means any ruling political regime, whether it be a traditional dynasty such as a medieval Chinese or European ruling dynasty handed down from father to son, 
for a modern capitalist democracy. Successful new dynasties, or political regimes, are hard to bring about. For the United States to cast England off as its mother country and give birth to the first modern political democracy took the collective sacrifice of most of its new citizens in the form of so many of its young men making the sacrifice of volunteering for the army and making the enormous sacrifices army life entailed back then, including many making the ultimate sacrifice. One percent of Americans died in the Revolutionary War. One percent of American mothers and fathers lost their children. If a proportionate number of Americans died in a war today, it would mean that we would lose two and a half million Americans. This wasn't an era in which we could borrow the costs of funding a major war with the world's greatest military power. Americans with much, much lower standards of living than we have had to fund the war largely out of their own pockets. Britain's mercantilist philosophy meant that almost all American industries' imports and exports before the war had been with Great Britain. This caused major problems for small manufacturers. There were very few large manufacturers back then, and exporters throughout the colonies. The newly minted Americans had to make great sacrifices in order to gain their freedom from England. Yet they did, and the men and women who emerged from the conflict were used to hardship, deprivation, and hard work. This was the case periodically throughout America's history. The Civil War, the Great Depression, and both world wars required Americans to endure sustained hardships and created tough people willing to endure great sacrifice for a greater good. This is why John F. Kennedy, 16 years after World War II, won great honor for his line, Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. These were men and women accustomed to sacrificing to make their country better. The equation has now been flipped. We instead commonly see citizens with much greater senses of entitlement. For baby boomers, grandchildren of the greatest generation, we grew up with perhaps the most affluent society the world has ever known. We became used to getting what we wanted. Working hard hasn't been unknown to us, at least many of us. Yet a set of expectation has accompanied that hard work. And there's another thing about us boomers. I don't know if this is something that every end dynasty generation experiences, but I find it striking about my generation. We seem to approach politics with a very emotional, even histrionic point of view. It's why I encourage those of my persuasion who understand how important it is to halt climate change to turn off Rachel Maddow. Although she's very definitely got the right approach to this issue and encourages us to take the necessary steps, but she does so by appealing to our emotions, not our intellect, by vilifying Americans not of her ilk and turning our fellow Americans into an outgroup. Though there are millions of Americans on the left who fall into this category, there are several times more Americans who, for whatever reason, have fallen under the spell of those on the right who have taught them to analyze current events through emotional and histrionic filters. I don't know if this is common to end dynastic generations, yet we're certainly facing our current twin crises of economic and climate disasters 
with the boomer generation largely programmed to look at current events emotionally and with a sense of entitlement that's exceptionally large, historically speaking. I'm using the word entitlement expansively to mean any chosen benefit conferred by government, from Social Security to tax cuts. There seems to be a dynamic that occurs in in in-groups of like-thinking individuals who identify as members of one group or another. We've seen it recently in the COVID pandemic, with mass numbers of people all frequenting the same websites and news sources, telling them COVID vaccines aren't effective but are dangerous. We saw it again with Trump's defeat in the 2020 election and the spread of the lie that there was massive voter fraud and that Trump had really won the election. In both of these cases, the evidence was overwhelmingly against these conspiracy theories, but the lie was believed by a great number of people. You might say that in one case, there was a mass denial regarding the efficacy of COVID vaccines, and in the other, a mass denial regarding the ability of the U.S. to conduct free and fair elections. So I guess we come to something you could call endonastic denialism. And here we are. We're living in a time in which an American generation grew up with more wealth and prosperity than any generation in the history of the world. We came to have great expectations about what life should give us. Our parents and grandparents fought in and sacrificed during World War II and the Korean War, both military engagements that enjoyed popular military support at home. But as boomers, we were drafted into the army in great numbers to fight in Vietnam, an extremely unpopular war. We never bought into the belief that we needed to sacrifice our best interests for the good of the country. It was our parents who asked not what their country could do for them, but rather what they could do for their country. I'm not talking about every boomer, of course, but enough boomers to make the sense of entitlement slash denialism a characteristic of our generation as a whole. I've said that each generation is given its own challenge as to whether it will roll the outer wheel of history forward one more revolution or not. For the baby boomers, once we got past the Vietnam War, the problem was that we couldn't agree on what our challenge was. For some, it was providing a better social safety net. For others, it was lowering taxes. Some wanted to protect the environment. Others, to reduce regulations and allow an easier playing field for businesses. Still others attempted to fight the nebulous evil of global terrorism. A generation so divided, chasing so many different and conflicting goals, is not likely to achieve much. But sadly, far, far too many boomers from across the political spectrum agreed on one thing. Americans were the enemy. It would be easy to blame commentators such as Limbaugh, Maddow, and Tucker Carlson for this, but that would miss the point. There have always been firebrand orators claiming that other Americans are the enemy. Senator Joseph McCarthy in the 50s is the first name that comes to mind. But though he had his day in the sun, he ended up in disgrace. The difference between baby boomers and previous generations of Americans is that giant swaths of both the left and right are more willing to accept the emotion-based arguments from these commentators that Americans are truly the enemy. America has long had its hard-fought political battles. And, with the exception of the Civil War, it has never been this divided. There's one thing that both Jesus and Abraham Lincoln agreed on. A house divided cannot stand. 
so boomers have fought and fought over the issues I outlined above. Sometimes a generation chooses its issues, like the suffragettes of the early 1900s. Sometimes an issue chooses its generation, and, like it or not, that will be the generation's great battle. Such was the case for the generation that weathered the Great Depression. Boomers, meanwhile, have continued to fight the battles they wanted to fight, all the while, year after year, incurring larger and larger federal deficits, amassing dangerously high federal debt, and year after year, filling our atmosphere with more and more carbon and other greenhouse gases. This has been the devastating cost of the boomers' sense of entitlement and failure to work together, massive federal debt, and impending climate catastrophe. The thing about the federal debt is that it's all hard numbers. There will come a point in the not-too-distant future, if America doesn't turn things around, where our debt-to-GDP ratio will lead investors and credit rating agencies to question America's creditworthiness. America's credit rating will be downgraded, and we will face a financial crisis greater than the Great Recession, if not the Great Depression. As with nonlinear systems, no one will be able to predict exactly when this will be, but more on that next episode. The thing about this is that there's no disputing it, and there's no question about it. The numbers are inevitable. There's no getting around them. Yet virtually no one talks about this looming danger. In the unusual cases when people talk about the federal deficit, they talk vaguely about the ethics of passing large amounts of debt on to your children. No, we're not passing a large debt onto our children that they will be able to pay off at their leisure at the same low interest rates that we're now incurring our trillion-dollar-plus annual deficits. We're dooming our children not to a nationwide, but a massive worldwide financial crisis because most of the world's economies are pegged to the dollar. And when America's debt-to-GDP ratio reaches the level that our credit is downgraded and our economy crashes, it will have worldwide repercussions. The Great Depression lasted 20 years. How long will this financial crisis last? The economy is nonlinear, so it's impossible to say. But this one won't be a short recession that's over in a year or two. To complicate matters, as America goes through its financial crisis, it will have something that our grandparents and great-grandparents never had during the Great Depression, a massive federal deficit, a deficit that has been paid for by selling government bonds, bonds that are selling at incredibly low interest rates. But all these bonds are for set periods of time, and as these bonds expire or mature, they will have to be paid either by the U.S. government taxing its citizens enough to pay off the bonds, which will be impossible, or by the government selling more bonds to pay off the expiring bonds. The problem, of course, is that America's credit rating will be shot at that point if we don't turn things around. Requiring the replacement bonds to be sold at very high interest rates, which millennials and future generations will have to pay with much higher taxes and at a time that they could be facing huge unemployment and possibly massive inflation. Forgive me for spending so much time on this, and we'll spend an episode on it next week. But people don't seem to want to listen to this stuff these days. As with everything, there are a few of us, 
but very few. It deserves a far deeper dive than I'm able to give it in these couple of episodes. But that's the nature of this podcast. We only get so much time for each subject. At any rate, it all gets to the core of this episode. Denial. Why is it that something that's going to affect the lives of our next generations so severely is not being addressed? It's so hard to find something that both the left and the right agree on completely and totally. Denial seems to be their common ground. Fox, MSNBC, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, you name it. They all agree on one thing. Don't address what's going to happen when our debt-to-GDP ratio reaches the point where our credit rating will be downgraded. Okay, enough of that for now. What about climate change? You might say that we're doing a lot better on this issue because at least huge numbers of Americans believe in the reality of human-caused climate change. NASA scientist James Hansen threw down the gauntlet for us way back in 1988 when he very famously testified before Congress that man-made climate change was already detectable to a 99% certainty. The UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was formed in 1988. As noted even 30 years ago, the science on climate change was clearer and initial steps were begun. But there were moneyed interests that didn't want America to take the steps that would be necessary to combat climate change. As far back as 1977, A senior scientist at Exxon informed management that burning fossil fuels was likely causing global warming. In 1988, a major report from Shell acknowledged fossil fuels' major impact on emissions and global warming. By the early 1990s, there was a well-developed network of well-funded neoconservative think tanks and fossil fuel corporate interests that included the Cato Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, major fossil fuel corporations, and later the Heartland Institute, that had joined forces to prevent the U.S. from signing onto the Kyoto Protocols. The coal, oil, and auto industries, along with utilities and mining interests, all spent major money promoting climate change denial advertising propaganda. Between 1998 and 2017, Exxon funded groups that promoted climate change denial or worked against climate change measures and legislation to the tune of $36 million. At the same time, they were investing millions of dollars in raising their oil drilling platforms in the Arctic because they knew they would ultimately be swamped by raising sea levels if they didn't. The Koch Family Foundation funded such organizations to the tune of $123 million over the same time period but there were many other neoconservative foundations and trusts that donated a combined $150 million plus towards such causes during the same time period. Although this is still going on, in recent years, those funding climate denialism have become more and more secretive, and the money funding this denial has gotten harder and harder to trace. This kind of massive amounts of money strategically spent can have very real effects on changing what people believe. It worked. Large number of Americans bought the climate change is a hoax story. The Earth's climatic temperatures has always fluctuated. The Earth's climate may be changing, but it's not man-made climate change. And so many other arguments that were being piped at them with these hundreds of millions of dollars. And these neoconservative sources were strategic. 
They advertise this message to neoconservatives through trusted sources. And neoconservatives did what all people do. They bought into the message that trusted sources told them. Then, as a critical mass of neoconservatives bought into the climate change denialism, climate change denialism became one of the defining aspects of being a neoconservative. This wasn't a foregone conclusion. Without so much money being pumped into the neoconservative media juggernaut, climate change denialism would likely never have become the central part of the neoconservative philosophy that it is today. Early on, thoughtful conservatives recognized the reality of what virtually all scientists said regarding the importance of addressing climate change. There is much talk about market-driven incentives to combat climate change, cap-and-trade, and so on, driven by responsible Republicans. Rupert Murdoch made huge infrastructural changes to his Fox Media empire to make it carbon-neutral in 2011, long before many other mainstream corporations made such changes. In 2008, Newt Gingrich filmed a public service announcement with Nancy Pelosi warning of the importance of taking precautions to avoid climate change, in which he said, We do agree. Our country must take action to address climate change. Sadly, such bipartisan consensus about the necessity of combating climate change, of course, faded away once climate denialism had reached its critical mass among neoconservatives. It turns out that, for most of us, the most important influencer of what we believe is not a cold, dispassionate examination and analysis of facts, but the opinions and beliefs of those in our in-group. This is all part and parcel of the whole in-group, out-group thing. Human nature includes an innate desire to fear out-groups, as we've talked about so much. But the obverse of this is our strong desire to be part of an in-group. The defining aspect of this desire is that we identify with our chosen in-group. This is why newly converted Christians will adopt complex new world views that are completely different from anything they've believed before. The adoption of their new belief system marks them as full members of their new in-group. Or, you may have noticed, if you had multiple friends and or loved ones in your life that were devoted Rush Limbaugh followers, that their beliefs on political matters were pretty much identical, down to the same talking points. Adopting the same beliefs as our in-group gives us the comfort of belonging, a need that's basic to humans. So when neoconservatives began to get the same climate change denial message through their trusted sources over and over again, they adopted the belief in climate change denialism. It's what people do. It's what we all do. Adopt beliefs from trusted sources. Conform to our in-groups. For a while now, convincing a climate change denier that climate change is actually happening has no longer been a matter of making intellectual points about CO2 percentages in the atmosphere, but convincing them to give up a major part of what connects them to their in-group. This is an incredibly difficult task, and, thanks to Exxon and others who waged the very successful public relations campaigns to spread a belief in climate change denialism, it's what we're up against now. So now... Convincing people that our national debt is reaching critical levels and that continued annual federal budget deficits are going to lead to an inevitable crisis is akin to convincing an addict that they're headed for a fall. 
It's incredibly difficult, but not impossible. But right now, no one on the national stage is taking up the challenge and convincing climate deniers that climate change is man-made and is now reaching crisis levels would require brave conservative voices to speak up, something very few have the courage to do right now. History is filled with examples of regimes that have been caught completely off guard by calamities. The Great Depression, the Viking invasions of 9th century England, the Mongol capture and sack of Baghdad in 1258. In these cases and so many, many others, each country's crisis was made so much worse by the fact that nobody saw the calamities coming and so were unprepared for the challenges that fell to their generation. We are now facing the possibilities of the twin challenges of both climate disaster and a financial crisis. The difference is that this time, these disasters are not black swans. They're completely foreseeable. Historians looking back on the Great Depression can argue whether it was foreseeable or not. No one in later generations will argue whether our twin calamities were foreseeable. In fact, no one will argue whether we brought them on ourselves or not. We are clearly doing so, unless things change. Climate change denialism is seen as an issue largely limited to the white baby boomer demographic. And although this is largely true, I'd argue that we should look beyond that. So many millennials are fully aware of the climate change problem, and perhaps vote for candidates they think might do something about it but then go on with their lives as though it were not the pressing issue that's going to change life significantly for them by the time they reach their parents' age, and almost unrecognizably for their children. Climate change is like the huge elephant in the room. Is this a matter of denial? I guess you could argue it either way, but they should all be screaming at the level of Greta Thunberg. We all have a tendency to see what we want to see. It's just part of the human condition. In addition to this, there's a huge element of groupthink that comes into play before society faces an economic or climate disaster. Because nobody really wants to think about an impending disaster, so many people don't really talk about it much. This gives everyone else permission not to talk about the urgency that's facing society. Sometimes we overcome this. As the Vikings who settled Iceland realized in the 10th century that they were destroying their ecosystem, and made changes to their lifestyle that allowed them eventually to thrive. Sometimes we don't, as the Easter Islanders who cut down all the trees on their island and destroyed their environment, dooming themselves and their progeny to lives of misery and poverty. Each one of us needs to address both of these issues. Everyone knows about climate change, and we'll take a deeper dive into the economic problems facing us next episode. We're nearing the end, and we'll have a fuller framework to understand all the issues at that time. But it's never too early to begin talking, both to our family and friends, about the urgency of these issues and becoming involved in a larger sense. Your read this week is Merchants of Doubt, 
how a handful of scientists obscured the truth on issues from tobacco smoke to global warming by Naomi Oreskes and Eric M. Conway. We've talked about the wealthy moneyed interests that were able to pour enough money into the climate change debate to sow seeds of climate change denialism way back in the early 2000s that have now flowered into the shibboleth that such denialism is for the neoconservative movement today. But who were their mouthpieces? Who were the merchants of doubt that were able to convince a generation to ignore the science that could save our world? This book does a great job of explaining how it was done. If you've had enough reading and want a break this week, watch the documentary movie that's based on this book. Enjoy. See you next week.